We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and everybody listening. How are you? I'm buzzing this morning and I don't know why. So am I. I was going to come on and say, you know, there were some days last week. So Pearl is six, well, six weeks and when this goes out, it'll be her seven-week birthday. And I was like earlier on last week, it was as though, I don't know if you ever felt this around six weeks, kind of the adrenaline and I don't know if it's the oxytocin or what wears off a bit and you're a bit like, whoo. Oh, this interrupted sleep is very constant, but I feel like, yeah, I feel like the last few days I've really got outdoors. We had the most beautiful weekend of weather. I saw you were out and about in it too. So and good. And it was just, everyone was happy. Like, you know, Pearl sleeps really well at the beach, I think because of the white noise of the ocean and I'm just happy there. The kids are happy there. Nick took Poppy out surfing for the first time, like full on out the back in the lineup. She went surfing and she stood up on Sunday. I don't know. It was just one of those weekends that you're just memorable. Yeah, one of those weekends that your your freedom doesn't come from like being away from your kids. It comes from like doing really fun, enjoyable stuff with your kids. And yeah, one of those weekends, I guess, like what we were speaking to Regan Fig about that, you know, you can find pleasure in motherhood and it doesn't have to be away from your children. It can be with your kids. And that's what it really felt like. So I'm in a very good mood this morning. How are you? I feel very much the same. And I agree with that. I also agree with the fact that you can do it in different ways. So for the first Friday night, the big girls had a sleepover at their friend's house. So I took the opportunity to take the toddlers, Greta was down and G out to the river. So we spent the whole day at the river, just filling up their cups. And it was so nice to have one-on-one time with just Yumi because I'm I don't know. I feel like she's turning four tomorrow and I've had, I don't know if it's because of everything that's, you know, happened around this time when I gave birth, but I just feel, I don't know. I feel clucky for the first time ever, but it's not clucky for babies. No, it's for how much I love her. And it's almost like a thank you. I'm so glad I had you because of just this whole journey. It's a really weird feeling, but it's such a beautiful feeling to have. And anyway, without going on and on and on, we had a beautiful day. And even when I was down there, I was looking at all these families and I said to Greta, how nice is it that everyone is just enjoying being outdoors? But then after that, we came back home and we decided it's such a nice day. Let's get the other girls back. They can bring their friends over. They can have a double sleepover. So we ended up having all up on the property, eight children that we were looking 
looking after. And surprisingly, because they all had friends, it was manageable and they were all having fun. It's touch and go because sometimes the friend over is easier and sometimes the friend over is harder and you just got to cross your fingers and hope for the best. Well, what I've worked out is you can't have one person with a friend. Mm. They either all have a friend. Yumi's okay, but Mia and Billy have to have a friend each and it works smoothly. But if one person has one friend and the other one doesn't, then fights break out. So I try and line it up. But then after that, we decided to fill up our cups, Harry and I, and we went out for a early dinner. And there is something about going out for an early dinner. It's almost like you feel extremely naughty as a parent that you're escaping the witching hour. Don't you reckon like... So did you get out of bedtime? Yeah, well, no, but that didn't bother me. It was more that manic time of four till six where you don't want to cook them dinner, you don't want to deal with them going, I'm bored, I want this, you know, just in a state and we just sat there and it was just we had like seven or eight courses and they're like I think that might be too much food and we're like it's not too much food it's so (laughs) do you know who I am anyway all in all absolutely beautiful weekend but let's talk about Yumi turning four because Poppy turning four through me I felt really nostalgic it was like when they're three they still have that mm-hmm. toddler thing going on there's a, a little bit still there at four and I've noticed now that she's turned five it's all gone mm. but four is a big deal it's like it, they're a child they're not a baby they're not a toddler and you know this is your last child so how, how do you feel this is I actually said to Harry in bed the other night I jumped on him and I said, not like that, you sickos. No, I said, I said, do you want to have a baby in like 10 years? And he's like, he looked at me, he put his book down, he's like, what? And I said, in 10 years, because think about it, they'll all be grown up and I'll be like, I just feel like it'd be so nice to just, you know, have one, we'll have all these little helpers. And he's like, Jade, no, darling. And I'm like, Oh, and then someone actually said to me that instead of doing a reverse vasectomy, look how much I'm thinking into it now. Oh, my God, I'm actually concerned. Yeah, you can do IVF. Yeah, but that's a process. Absolutely it is. It just depends how desperate. Or I could just find another partner. Or your eldest will be... Don't say that. Wait for a grandchild. I know, I know. Oh, my gosh, you will have complete and utter freedom. You'll have a 19-year-old and 18-year-old and a, well, not complete freedom. I know they're always going to need you. And a what, 14-year-old. Do not go back there, Jay. Can we, are we worried that I'm thinking like this? Because I remember when Billy was around four, this is when I really had that urge to have a baby. Like I really. Come have a few sleepovers at mine instead. I think I might have to. I'm going to use this to my advantage and you can use it to your advantage that it just simmers you down a little bit. So let's put a call out. We want to know, do you feel when your child turns four that there is this no more baby emptiness, you've got the child and that's it? Is there that feeling for everyone or is it just us? Let us know in the Facebook group. A lot of people say don't allow your partner to get a vasectomy until your youngest is in school because mm. once they're in school you then. might want to go again. But I'm I'm not taking that risk. I am no. not taking that risk. We had sex for the first time Ooh. the other day and even though, like, look, 
<laughs> the likelihood of me getting pregnant would be very low. And, you know, he yes. <laughs> pulled out. I was still like, oh, my God, what if I get oh, no. pregnant again? And all of a sudden it clicked and I was like, okay, I think I'm yeah. ready for you to go get that vasectomy. Yeah. But you know what? Saying that, it's not just that because we're heading up the coast today with my mum and dad because we're going to celebrate her birthday tomorrow up there and do some fun things for Yumi. And it's the hotel things. You can't have a family of five in a lot of hotels. You've got to have a double room. So you've got to have the interconnecting rooms because they legally can't have that many people in a hotel room. So prices go up. Then you think, oh, so you're like, may as well just have another one. (laughs) I may as well have 50 if I've got three. Oh my gosh. I'm concerned for you. Are you, you're seriously considering this? I'm not okay. I'm so okay. I'm worried. That's why I'm worried because I'm so okay. You want to go back to the struggle? No, I don't want to go back to the struggle. I've just got to push on. I'll put my love and energy into the podcast, I think. Yeah, BTB can be your fourth baby, thanks, and I'll just sit back and enjoy the ride. Yeah. Now, I just want to send out a bit of a PSA because Pearl is our first baby who hated the car. And I've heard people talk about babies hating the car. Well, Goldie wasn't keen. Like, you know, I've always had a baby who's cried here and there in the car, but I'm talking like a three-minute trip. Oh, she hates it? No matter how well I planned it, we will get to our destination and she will legit be bright pink slash purple from head to toe, sweating from head to toe, proper tears, screaming so loud that like your bones go Mm -hmm. cold. It's really stressful, isn't it? Because you anticipate that feeling. Well, anyone who had told me before, like, oh, my kid screams in the car. I'm kind of like, yeah, well, like we've all had a kid that screams in the car. Like they're fine. As long as they're fed, they're fine. You know, you just keep driving and get from one destination to the other. Anyway, I fully get it now. Like I was literally looking at the week ahead and being like, oh my gosh, we I've got an obstetrician appointment on that day that I have to drive half an hour to get to. Like, how am I going to do that? Already anxious. And like, I'm I'm not a particularly anxious parent. And obviously having two older kids, like we're in the car a lot. We're going places a lot. It's a solid drive to get the kids to daycare, all this stuff. And I was like, I was really changing my behavior because I was worried about the car. And I tried the, is it the Happy Baby by Imogen Heap song? And that definitely helped a bit, but kind of wore off really quickly we bought this interactive mirror from baby bunting that definitely helped a bit but you know still like basically as soon as you put her in the capsule she like knew that she was in there and just lost it like you 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 wouldn't have even had to start driving yet anyway so the other day we changed over her capsule to a rear-facing car seat And I just want to put this out there just for, you know, for parents, if you have the option of both to give it a try, because we've had it in for like three or four days now, and she has fallen asleep every time in the car. She's barely cried, like a whinge here or there before she falls asleep. But it has, I really hope I'm not jinxing it because it has been life changing. So what's the difference between that and the capsule? Is it the way she's like she's sitting. It's a completely different position. So the capsule is really curved and don't quote me on the recommendations, but you know, obviously the benefit of a capsule is that like, if they fall asleep in the car, you take the capsule out and you keep them asleep. But I'm pretty sure the recommendations are that you're not actually meant to keep your baby in a capsule for more than like an hour, an hour and a half straight. Because of their spine. Yeah. Because it is really curved. And that got me thinking, I'm like, well, if she's screaming in the car and the recommendations are that it's not good for 
for her spine. Maybe she's not fucking comfortable. <laughs> like if I put two and two together, I know some babies love the capsule and it's like, and it was a godsend at the start because she, when she was a newborn, she would just fall asleep in it and I could go about, you know, just click her into the pram and off we went with the other two. But no, it was no longer serving its purpose. So we swapped over to the car seat and it has been such a game changer. And I'd rather risk, you know, waking her up on transfer than than dealing with car trips. Yeah. Like she wasn't falling asleep anyway because she was so beside herself. And it could be because she's a bigger baby too. Like maybe she just outgrew it really fast. But if anyone has a bub out there that is absolutely hating the car I recommend that and another recommendation that was given to me is the Polynesian spa playlist on Spotify we have been blasting it through the speakers in the car all three kids have been falling asleep no matter what time of the day it is I now sleep with it overnight in the room rather than white noise on and I find it way more calming it's got like rain and ocean sounds in the background but then gentle music over the top so it doesn't like drill into your brain so much it is if we need the house to just calm down in general we just pop it on through the speakers and everyone is way happier so polynesian spa playlist on spotify it is an absolute winner okay just so everyone can have a little glimpse i've just uh i've just got a little hang on is this him <laughs> No. If you get a picture that looks like Joe Rogan, <laughs> that is not it. Don't type in playlist, just type in Polynesian Spa. I'll link it in this week's newsletter for you. There's a little bit of a glimpse. Yeah, I think any anyone can have a bit of that on throughout the night. That would get yeah. me to sleep for throughout sure. Throughout the day, throughout the night, throughout witching hour, whatever, just get it playing. Now, today we have a very special guest. He has been on several times. Can you guess who it is? I can. I was in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sleep deprived, but not that sleep deprived. It's Dr. Timmy. Dr. Timmy is back. Yep, it is him. And we asked him all types of things to find out if they were pregnancy myths or pregnancy facts. So things like, can you eat soft cheese in pregnancy? Can you have soft serve? Can you lie on your back? And yeah, I think you guys are going to like this one. I had a fun time recording it. It was so much fun. And I think Timmy really enjoyed himself too. So we hope you enjoy and happy birthday, Yumi. Happy birthday, Yumi. Dr. Timmy, it has been a while. Grandfather of five. Welcome wow. back to the potty, Dr. Timmy. Look at him. He's so smitten over there. You can't wipe the smile off his face. You're wonderful to be back. I had to wait four weeks to see granddaughter number five, beautiful little Pearl. I've got my way with the name again as well, all three of them, Poppy. Goldie, Pearl. He thinks beautiful. he named all three. So and she named none of them. But we just go with it because, you know, mm, whatever keeps him happy. As soon as he walks out the door, I say, that's not true. <laughs> I've had a lot of his patients message me saying, oh, Timmy told me all about the story of how he named Pearl. <laughs> I'm like, I don't actually know what that story is because it's not true. <laughs> what do you think? And actually, saying? we're talking about pregnancy myths or truths today. And that's a myth, Timmy. That is a myth. That may be the one thing today that is not a myth. Well, and, whatever and helps so you sleep at night. Now, I might not be having another pregnancy, but I am really excited to go through all these because I still don't know 
what is a myth and what is a fact. And I want to say if anyone's confused right now and they haven't listened to a Dr. Timmy episode before, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. But the reason we're speaking about granddaughters with Dr. Timmy is Dr. Timmy is an obstetrician, gynecologist and fertility specialist, but he's also my dad. So that is where the unprofessional kind of crossover <laughs> happens. He is not my obstetrician. We'll say that a thousand times. He's not my obstetrician. But we're here because we're going to talk about pregnancy myths versus facts. I'm a bit upset that you're introducing with people who haven't listened to the Dr. Timmy episodes before. I mean, God. Get, Some get, people have flaws, Timmy, Get right? to work, would you? I mean, how would you know about induction and hyperemesis and questions about IVF unless you've listened to the Dr. The Timmy The percentage episodes? is low. The percentage is low, I'm sure. Oh, thank goodness. I was hurt for a moment. Now, the reason we asked you on to do this is because there is so much noise when you are pregnant about what you can do, what you can't do, what something means, you know, every... Susan at the shops tell you you're carrying high, you must be having a boy, you're carrying low, you must be having a boy, you're carrying in the <laughs> middle, you must be having a boy. So we want to get to the bottom of what things actually matter and what don't. And the thing that kind of kicked this off was when I was pregnant, every time I posted a picture of pretty much anything on my stories, someone who was pregnant would write back saying, oh my God, are we allowed to eat that? And it wasn't even necessarily the, the common things that you hear about like soft cheeses or sushi. It was literally anything. And I got thinking, I feel really bad for a lot of women because what on earth are you eating? I mean, I had hyperemesis, so it was hard enough for me to eat anything as it was. But if I put those pressures of really, really restricting my mm. diet on top of that, I would honestly have eaten bread and that would have been it. So we want to get to the bottom of them. Great idea. Not that you'd know how you carry a boy high or low. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, we're, we're going to talk about some of the myths and I'll preface that by saying that I think probably every question you're going to ask me, it's going to be a myth. Oh, spoiler alert. Yeah. Oh, spoiler All right, turn alert. off. That's it. <laughs> Goodbye. But the idea of this episode is to make people feel more positive, to feel more comfortable, to feel less worried. So please, before people get up in arms about any of the answers I give, could they please pay due respect to the fact that I have been doing obstetrics for over 30 years and that... I consider pregnancy to be a healthy thing and not an illness or a disease. I'm well aware that complications can occur and that may be where my part is played. But I'm here today to make people feel more comfortable and less worried and to be able to do more things. And please don't come back at me with your anecdote that, oh, I did this or I've read that or or that in my pregnancy I tried this and this happened. Just anecdotal things don't really work when you're trying to give advice to a broad number of people and you're trying to base it on somebody's advice who's had a lot of experience. Yeah, and also with any medical episode, this is obviously all very generalised. If you've had a healthcare professional, for example, who's told you you are not allowed to drink any coffee, please take that advice mm. and don't take ours. <laughs> so to start us off, I can't drink coffee while pregnant. Absolutely, you can. And in fact, some people don't feel like drinking coffee at all when they're pregnant right from the moment of the first pregnancy test and then miraculously feel like a cup of coffee in the birth suite after they've given birth to their baby. 
or wherever it is that you gave birth <laughs> to your baby. But I th- would definitely say that somebody can have a coffee if they feel like it in pregnancy. A lot of people who are used to drinking coffee will get really bad headaches and feel quite unwell if they don't have their morning coffee or their morning tea coffee. So like most other things in pregnancy, as long as it's not in excess, coffee is absolutely fine. And and that includes other caffeinated drinks like cola and Diet Coke and Diet Pepsi, all those things. As long as it's not in excess, that's absolutely fine. Because I think people get confused because they say you're allowed a certain amount of grams and people go, well, what mm. does that mean? Like I'm going to the shop and just ordering a coffee. Do you say like one single shot coffee one a day coffee, or please. one double shot coffee a day? I or- would be more than happy for somebody to have two or three normal coffees Whoa. a day. Hell yeah. And <laughs> obviously if you're drinking instant coffee, which is rare these days, who no, knows how much you put on a teaspoon. But um, no, I'm more than happy if somebody wants to drink two or three cups of coffee a day, that's fine. I mean, when you think about it, what what would it be about caffeine that is harmful to either a pregnant woman or their their baby? There's nothing there that would be harmful to the baby. Cool. Good to know. All right, Timmy, I can't eat soft serves. Well, now we're getting on to this whole diet issue that's been blown way out of proportion about listeria. Most of the foods you're going to ask me about, the, the, the concern is based on a concern about listeria. And I want to preface every answer I give about food by saying that in that 30-something year career, I've seen one case of listeria. You also have to remember that not only am I looking after patients that I might be caring for in my practice, I'm also in the delivery suite. I've also worked at public hospitals and been involved in the care of thousands of other women. And also I go to meetings very regularly where we discuss complications that have occurred in pregnancies that the hospitals that I deliver at. So if pregnant women were arriving with complications due to listeria, I would be hearing about those cases in those meetings and I'm just not hearing about them. So I'm aware that listeria exists and I am aware that the occasional complication due to listeria occurs, but the level of anxiety about listeria in pregnancy nowhere near matches the occurrence rate of listeria complications. Now with soft serve ice cream, the concern is that if you buy a soft serve from your Mr. Whippy van, that he's had that liquid that forms the soft serve in a tub, which is refrigerated and stirred and then served to you when you ask for your ice cream. Then <laughs> That mis- is what happens when you go to a Mr. Whippy van. Thank yes, you. <laughs> but, but the next step is Mr. Whippy then drives home, parks his Mr. Whippy van in Turns his driveway. Off the turns off the refrigeration, doesn't want to waste the ice cream that's left over in his tub, gets up the next morning, heads down to the local beach, turns on his little jingle through his speakers (laughs) and cools it down again, which means it was a beautiful environment for bacteria and, you know, Mm. any sort of infection to fester. So therefore, 
if you do have a soft serve ice cream from, say, McDonald's or, or another proprietor of soft serve ice cream, they will, in fact, be emptying their tub, cleaning it and putting the fresh soft serve ice cream in. It won't have reached room temperature or worse still, driveway temperature. <laughs> and therefore, Driveway in summer yeah. temperature. Yeah, therefore the soft serve ice cream will be absolutely perfectly safe. So this is the one time that we say do not support small business and support the big guys. And go and get your Sundays, ladies. <laughs> Can I say something about listeria as well? I think because the only time anyone hears about it is in pregnancy, that people think it is like an illness of pregnancy. But actually listeria is something that anyone yeah. can get at any time Absolutely. from foods. And if you think about that, how often do you hear about listeria? Like never. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. Listeria, we could call it a form of food poisoning, but most food poisoning isn't caused by listeria. So when you get um, food poisoning, it might be salmonella, shigella, campylobacter, the other more common infections that cause food poisoning, and that's both locally and abroad. So, yes, food poisoning is an awful, awful illness, and we've all known how terrible it is to rush to the toilet <laughs> and have to make that choice about sitting or spewing. <laughs> but the bottom line is that even when you've had food poisoning when you're not pregnant, it would very, very rarely, if ever, have been listeria. So I know that when you're pregnant, you're given brochures on listeria because it seems that when you get listeria in pregnancy, it causes more complications to the pregnancy than, say, if you've got other forms of food poisoning. Mm. But what I say to people is just think about what you're eating as if you're trying to avoid getting food poisoning <laughs> which is what I would do every day with what I was eating. And, and Timmy's not pregnant. And I'm not really? pregnant yeah. and fortunately haven't had food poisoning Yeah, that's what Dad said to me when I was pregnant. He goes, if it's something you would avoid when you're not pregnant, don't eat it when you yeah. are pregnant. Yeah. Otherwise, you're <laughs> pretty much good to go. So sushi, miss it so much when you're pregnant. I can't eat seafood or sushi, can I? Of course you can eat seafood or sushi. Oh, uh, one of the things that has the red light warning going on sushi is that certainly where I live, the most recent food poisoning closures of shops seems to always be sushi shops. And both the seafood in sushi or in non-seafood sushi, the rice in sushi can be sources of food poisoning. But again, that would be because the contents of the sushi hasn't been pr properly refrigerated. Mm. It hasn't been properly stored. Sushi that was made three days ago might be sold to you today. We don't know what the back room of that shop looks like in terms of food handling hygiene. So again, if you were to buy your sushi, particularly somewhere where you saw it being put together and you could see that the place that you were getting your sushi would have high standards of food hygiene. There is no reason why you couldn't eat sushi. Oh, this is making me feel good. No, I'm not going to be pregnant anytime <laughs> soon, but for all the women out there, you girls, let's this be is honest, great. it was the sushi stopping you from getting pregnant again. So you should go. It's Reverse actually, that vasectomy, Harry. It's actually the next question, Tim. But can I say about the sushi that oh, um, yes, go on. 
it seems to be that sushi and Chinese food are something that people crave after giving birth. And in delivery suite, it's so common for someone to say to me, oh, I'm busting for some sushi now. But going back to it causing listeria, I mean, sushi wasn't really around when I was young and certainly when when we were having children. But it's so common now to eat sushi just as a snack. And how many friends have you had who've gone down with food poisoning or in particular listeria from having sushi? None that I can think of. But what about seafood? Is that more of an issue of mercury? What's the deal with seafood? Oh, no. Mercury, again, mercury tends to be concentrated in very large fish because as the sort of environment would have it in the sea, really little fish get eaten by slightly bigger fish, get eaten by bigger fish, get eaten by really big fish. And therefore, the biggest fish will have the highest concentration of mercury because they're they're concentrating the mercury because they're eating smaller fish. But you would really have to eat seafood from large fish every single day virtually for every meal to get anything anywhere near a level of mercury, uh, not poisoning, but an excessive level of mercury in your diet and then in your circulation. So I've absolutely never seen a person with any form of mercury poisoning or mercury complications. Kudos to anyone who can eat that much fish while pregnant because I could not even look at it and my husband is a keen fisherman. Well, I had a lady who who I delivered many years ago. This would be a child that would now be in its 20s and she was absolutely addicted to canned tuna during the pregnancy and literally ate tuna for every (laughs) meal of the pregnancy. Certainly that baby was fine. Now tell me it isn't true. I can't eat deli meats and soft cheese. Uh, well, we'll do cheese first. Mm-hmm. There has been a couple of outbreaks of listeria in Victoria over the last couple of decades. And what they have in common is that people have eaten unpasteurized cheese. And where you would tend to find unpasteurized cheese would be people who are like homemade cheese or cheese that you would buy at a country market, which let's face it, hasn't been commercially produced. It's been produced at at home or in a, a smaller setting. So if you're eating cheeses that have been made by a a commercial level cheesemaker, it will be pasteurised, it will be packaged, it will have a use-by date, it will be refrigerated, it will be taken to the supermarket or the deli where you get the cheese and refrigerated and then sold within the time of the use-by date. If you eat those cheeses, you won't get listeria. And deli meats? Deli meats Really the same story in terms of food handling. If you're eating deli meats from a reputable deli or a supermarket where that was um, looked after in the shop in proper refrigerated environment and given to you in properly wrapped and properly cut, that will be safe. And if, if I can't allay your fears about deli meat, cheese, things like that, then just eat 
any of those foods but eat them hot because one thing that listeria is is it's very heat intolerant so if you were to eat and i'm sure one of these questions will be can you eat pizza because pizza has cheese and often deli meats on it well if you put a pizza in the oven i can assure you by the time it comes out of that pizza oven any listeria that was in any of those contents which was almost certainly zero <laughs> would be dead it's less than zero now mm. i'm so hungry <laughs> now this one came up a lot for me when i was pregnant and i tried to be wary of it what about runny eggs or eggs in general yeah like can you have mayonnaise and aioli and like a poached egg Runny? Absolutely. The, the the answer to that question again is um, how many people do you know that have become unwell from eating a runny egg or having mayonnaise? And remember, if you add eggs to, say, a milkshake or some sort of health shake that you're making, you're not cooking that egg at all. You're just whisking it and then putting it through milk and drinking it raw. So... <laughs> What are you having for breaky Timmy? Your health lord. <laughs> have you ever heard of an eggnog and things like this? I'd never have it myself, but yeah. people oh, do. Yeah. I mean, you can cut that out if no one has no, it. No, no, no. Keep going. But, but, but sound like a health lord. Is that me. fine? Absolutely fine. And again, how many people do you know who've got food poisoning from mayonnaise or from an egg? And look, to be honest, a hard poached egg makes me feel sick and that's got nothing to yeah. do with food poisoning. It's just not the way it's meant to be. Yeah. All right, now pineapples can cause miscarriage so I should avoid them in pregnancy. Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, I could shut that down just absolutely off the cuff. I can't think of any food that would cause miscarriage. Certainly I, I know and I'm aware that listeria can cause not only miscarriage but premature birth and and can be an extremely severe problem in pregnancy i'm not trying to suggest it doesn't exist i'm just telling you that it is incredibly uncommon and there are so many other things that could happen in pregnancy that are relatively common that i don't want people who are either pregnant or planning to be pregnant to be worried about something that they don't need to be worried about Enjoy your pregnancy, be positive, eat what you feel like when you're pregnant and then you'll feel better in yourself, you'll enjoy your pregnancy more, you'll sleep better, you'll feel better and you won't suffer any complications as a result. Avoiding foods during pregnancy leads to greater risk of Bob being allergic to that. Yeah, look, I hear that a lot and I do get asked about allergies in children subsequent to diet during pregnancy or a newborn and then child's diet early in life. I think it's fair to say that Australia seems to be have become a bit of a capital of allergies. Now, I'm not suggesting that we've we've concocted that and we don't have people with allergies because we see people who have allergies that are fatal so i'm well aware of the severity of the condition and therefore there must be some sort of cofactor that is making allergies so much more common in this generation than it was in previous generations but i also think it would be fair to say that whilst allergies are being researched absolutely ex intensively and extensively at the moment, it couldn't be said that there is absolute evidence that your diet during pregnancy will affect your baby and subsequent child's uh, predisposition to having allergies. 
I can have tiny bits of alcohol. Alcohol is, of course, a controversial one, and the NHMRC, which is a sort of health body in Australia, has changed their recommendations on alcohol from two standard drinks a day to none, and we are duty-bound caring for pregnant women to say that we would recommend that they have no alcohol in pregnancy. And if you look at bottles of wine from the United States, it's actually written on the label like a smoking warning. So I wouldn't want to come on a a podcast like this and start saying, oh, look, it's all right to have a few drinks because I think that's unprofessional. I think the standard expected from my profession at the moment is to say you shouldn't drink alcohol in pregnancy. If, however, you were to have a drink of alcohol before you knew you were pregnant, I can reassure you that it won't have harmed your baby. And I can also reassure people that very mild intake of alcohol in pregnancy has not been shown to cause harm to pregnancies. And the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, which I guess is is the sort of worst expression of excessive alcohol consumption in pregnancy, is a combination usually of very, very high continuous levels of alcohol consumption in association with severe dietary deficiencies. And that, of course, would not be the sort of having a glass of wine type alcohol consumption that the listeners to this podcast would be thinking about. So out of curiosity, in a day, like if someone was drinking every single day throughout their pregnancy, it wasn't just one, it was like, you know, having maybe, I don't know, say three glasses of wine per day for nine months or 10 months, would that actually be a risk factor? Absolutely. It would be a concern that somebody was drinking that much during their pregnancy. Mm. So their baby uh, as a newborn would, with that sort of level of alcohol consumption, almost certainly go through a form of alcohol withdrawal when it was born. Mm. So that baby would be prone to being very irritable, difficulty feeding, um, jittery, you know, and in the worst sorts of withdrawal symptoms can even have a seizure. In terms of the baby's subsequent cognitive development, then you can't possibly do a study that shows a a graph from like zero alcohol through to 20 drinks a day, which has thousands of children followed up until they're 30 and shows a sort of linear relationship between how much alcohol they drink they drink and the well-being of their subsequent child and then adult. So I think we just need to say that you would minimize your alcohol consumption and the ideal level would be zero. Now I'm well aware that in some cultures around the world, drinking a glass of alcohol, particularly with dinner every night, is just a cultural routine. And therefore there would be countless millions of hundreds of millions of children in the world whose mothers drank a glass of wine every evening with their evening meal because that is culturally what they do probably from quite a young age. And there's no evidence that children in those communities are less well-developed mentally or physically later in life. 
Yeah, I got this question a lot when I was pregnant. People saying, aren't you scared taking Zofran or Ondansetron about the increased risk of cleft palate to your baby? So should I not have been taking Ondansetron for that reason or for others? Well, of course, I was a great help to you in <laughs> obtaining Ondansetron <laughs> during your pregnancy so that if I felt that there was any risk associated with that, I certainly wouldn't be giving it to you. Unfortunately, the whole concept of the dangers of drugs in pregnancy was created in the 1960s when a commonly used morning sickness medication was shown to cause very severe birth defects, including limbs not developing. It really was a horrific set of complications that occurred due to that morning sickness medication. And it was actually a doctor in Australia who was credited with discovering that link, a Sydney obstetrician. And as a result, it became this fear that medications in pregnancy would cause birth defects when really that was just one example of one medication. Now, I know there are other examples and there are some medications, particularly acne medication that people might be on and they're told, absolutely, you must not conceive while you're on this medication. But overwhelmingly, the medications that are available on prescription these days at your pharmacy for a whole host of reasons are safe in pregnancy. And you do have to remember that if something is looked at intensively, if the rate of a condition is very low and then you do a study and look at people, for example, taking Zofran, then you would only need one or perhaps two more cases of that condition over thousands or even tens of thousands of people for it to come up as suggestive of a statistically significant difference. So I think we can now comfortably say that Ondansetron has been used by so many people in so many pregnancies in high doses and prolonged usage that it doesn't cause abnormalities in pregnancy. And we can also say that the main side effect of Ondansetron, of course, is constipation. Oh, yeah. So I, in early pregnancy where constipation is a common problem anyway, partly due to pregnancy, partly due to dehydration and in the use of Zofran, partly due to that. I'm always very wary when giving a prescription for Ondansetron to make sure the person picks up something when they're there to try and keep their bowels moving because constipation can be a real issue. Ultrasounds are bad for the baby. Ultrasound does not cause defects in pregnancy of any type. I would say that ultrasound is the greatest advance in obstetric care in the history of modern medicine and that it's interesting that the most complicated pregnancies will be the most ultrasounded pregnancies by virtue of the fact that you're trying to monitor the growth of the baby more carefully in a complicated pregnancy. So, for example, a baby showing evidence of, of very slow growth would be having ultrasounds a lot more often than a person whose pregnancy was progressing completely routinely. But, you know, if we're here to talk about myths in pregnancy, 
suggesting that ultrasound causes any damage to pregnancy is a myth. Oh, this one. Yeah, this was yeah. the most, most sent yeah. in one. Yeah. I have to sleep on my side, not on my back. This is one of the most frustrating pieces of information that I come across in my obstetric practice. And based on a very vague anatomical reason, people have been suggesting that you can't sleep on your back during pregnancy for decades. I'd like to say that what I would always say to a patient is to think that we would be so fundamentally misdesigned as humans that you can't lie on your back when you're pregnant, yet when you're sleeping, you don't know what position you're lying in, is the most preposterous concept you could ever come across. So I'd make a couple of points in relation to that. When someone goes along to their obstetrician, midwife, GP, and has a pregnancy visit, what is the first thing that that person does? Lies that down. person lies them down on their back and has a feel of their tummy. I'd also like to say in defense of, you know, because I know people are going to be outraged that I disagree with this concept, is that the studies that were performed that suggested that there's a concern about lying on your back in pregnancy are so poorly designed and don't represent any form of valid scientific data that I would challenge that, in fact, those studies that suggest you can't lie on your back are not legitimate. The other thing I'd say is that, yes, I am aware, so please don't reply that I didn't mention this, I am aware that when you're in labour, they will avoid you lying on your back, particularly if you've had an epidural or a spinal anaesthetic for a caesarean, because at those times, your circulation changes and a lot of blood gets shunted out into your periphery. So your actual circulating volume, the actual blood in the main part of your circulation is lower. And at those times, you're at risk of dropping your blood pressure and lying flat on your back, putting pressure on the vessels entering the uterus and perhaps decreasing the flow of blood to the baby. I'm aware of those things and we take precautions with regard to those things. But if we're talking about someone who is basically told from the time they conceive that they can't lie on their back because they're pregnant, I would absolutely vigorously challenge that notion. And that's really good to hear because there's a lot of anxiety and stress when it comes to pregnancy in general, but to know in the middle of the night when you have that in the back of your head and you wake up and you go, oh, I'm on my back, like yeah. you start to panic and think I've got to turn on my side. But realistically, we all don't know what we're doing when we're sleeping, so and you I, do end and up And I like feel that. like you do get to a point that it's way too uncomfortable to sleep on your back anyway because you do kind of feel like you're suffocating, Especially right? when you so get So do you just listen to what's comfortable? Yeah, well, along the lines of what I said at the start about I'm here to try and make people feel more positive and enjoy their pregnancy more. It's a great thing to be able to say to someone, no, you lie however you're comfortable so that you can get a better night's sleep. And it's interesting that 
the whole lying on your back during pregnancy uh, issue was given further impetus when a study was performed, not so much a study, but there was an investigation into stillbirth in Victoria and they came up with guidelines to try and reduce the rate of stillbirth. And they included, of course, not smoking in pregnancy, trying to detect early babies that were smaller than expected for their dates, and telling women to keep a more conscious record of their baby's movements and not lying on your back in late pregnancy. And it's interesting that Two of the four recommendations are absolute rubbish because keeping a mental note of baby's movements is such a subjective thing that all that's going to do is make people panic mm. about their baby's movements because there's no realistic way that they can keep an objective outline of how their baby's moving and lying on the back, which has such poor evidence to support it. Your baby's gender is impacted by the time in the cycle that you have sex. When you think that in a normal ejaculate, there could be 500 million sperm, and indeed I've even seen semen analysis with one billion sperm in one ejaculate. These are numbers that we can't comprehend. These are numbers that are just so beyond anything we can comprehend. And half of those sperms will be carrying an X and half of those sperm will be carrying a Y. So to imagine that anything that you did during the cycle, before the cycle, anything at all that might affect whether the one sperm that penetrates that egg is an X sperm or a Y sperm, it just doesn't pass any form of test at all. So, so it's no. So it's the sperm that dictates the gen. The dictates. Dic <laughs> it's the sperm that dictates the gender. 100%. So can a man carry way more XX sperm than XY? Because some people no, say no, that like having two boys previously means you're more likely to have another boy. Or, for example, if I had another baby with Nick, are we more likely to have another girl over another boy? Like does he have more female mm. sperm? Absolutely not. If you were to have a fourth baby, which I'd strongly encourage you to do, <laughs> the chances of having a boy and a girl would be 50-50. And you don't have XX and XY sperm. A sperm has only half a chromosomal complement of 23 chromosomes and an egg has half a oh, chromosomal yeah, content of 23. A normal egg contains 23 chromosomes including an X and a sperm contains 23 chromosomes, 50% with a Y and 50% with an X. And the sperm was formed from a male cell which is, of course, 46 chromosomes with an X and a Y. So you make exactly as many X sperm as you make Y sperm. Can you tell it's been a while since I've worked as a doctor? <laughs> I don't even yeah. have the basics down pat anymore. So well, one interesting thing I once heard on the radio was that um, it was actually a sports scientist. He said that it's been shown that female athletes 
have more boys because they have higher levels of testosterone from exercising and therefore they are more likely to have a boy, which is just an absolutely profoundly stupid comment <laughs> because the sex wasn't determined by the woman's testosterone levels or by anything to do with her. It was determined by whether an X or a Y sperm fertilized the egg and sperm are not affected in any way by the sort of ambient hormone levels within the environment of the egg that would lead it to be fertilized by an X or a Y. Similarly, I heard that Nick was more likely to have girls because he's into cooking. So his nuts are often oh in front God. of the oven, which warms up the sperm and makes it more likely to give you a girl. But there are companies online that are promising that if you get this, whatever it is online, this set delivered to your door, let's just say it's like apple cider vinegar mixed with something and you base yourself, it will make the male or female sperm have like slow down yes, or faster. Correct. And then that will give you more of an opportunity to select the gender. So Do what they are have a money bomb guarantee? Because oh my that God. would be expensive. Imagine. <laughs> well, how could I be surprised by that when there are gigantic chemist shops all over Australia, which are three quarters filled with vitamin tablets that do nothing? <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> Nausea is worse if you're having a girl. Anecdotally, can Jade, Jade and I can, can say we agree. <laughs> I believe there may be some evidence to Ooh. suggest that, but I'm very sceptical that that would be the case because the hormonal environment is not altered by the gender of the pregnancy and therefore I don't feel that there would be any any relationship between gender and hyperemesis. It's difficult to give a specific answer to hyperemesis background questions because we don't really know exactly what causes hyperemesis <laughs> other than pregnancy. <laughs> and um, there are certainly demographical differences in hyperemesis. You know, in certain communities, it's more common and in higher socioeconomic groups, it's more common. But I would have to say that it's most likely that it's more common in girls is a myth. There are different cravings based off the gender. Sweet, yep, you're having a girl. Savory, oh, it's definitely a boy. Based on the fact that it's probably 50% of people would tell you sweet was a girl and sweet was a boy <laughs> and the same for savoury, definitely a myth. Much the same for the next one. Yeah. Carrying low means you're having a boy, but I think 50% of people think that carrying low <laughs> means you're having a girl. No, I'd like to go back one step from that as if we're looking at a pregnant tummy. I don't know what people mean by carrying low. I, I honestly, I've been doing obstetrics for <laughs> I think it's 33 years now and I still don't know what people mean when they say you're carrying low. The uterus is in the pelvis. <laughs> the, the embryo enters the uterine cavity and implants and starts growing from, you know, a few thousand cells to a few million cells and then by about 12 weeks the uterus is big enough to be felt just up outside of the pelvis. And then as you go through the second and then the third trimester, the pregnancy gets bigger and bigger. 
So it's like saying to me that you could fill a glass of water from the top half first. <laughs> you fill the glass of water from the bottom to the top. And so I really don't <laughs> know what carrying low means. I do know that some people- So yes, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so some people, particularly, for example, having a second or third baby, they may have more stretchiness mm. in their abdominal muscle, muscles and tissues such that they pop out earlier. And some people have different shaped bottoms to other people, which means standing side on, mm. they might look and different. And torsos. And yeah, some people are Long. four foot 11 and some people are six foot two. But the bottom line is that I still don't know what carrying low means. But even if I did, it wouldn't tell me what the gender was. And All right. I think that's a good answer. I think that's a great answer. Yeah. I think if people complain you haven't answered that one, you've bloody answered yeah. that one. Now, what about a faster heart rate is more likely to be a girl and a lower heart rate is more likely to be a boy? Oh, this is a ripper, this one. Because, um, <laughs> We've really reached yeah. his favourite. Yeah. Because yeah. if you do a monitoring of a baby and, and, and a lot of women at some point in their pregnancy will have the baby's heartbeat monitored, over the course of, say, a 20-minute monitoring, the highest heart rate that was reached might even have been 180 beats per minute, just, just for a few seconds. And the lowest heartbeat recorded might have been as low as 100 or 110. And then the bulk of the heartbeat, let's say this is at term, will be sort of around the 110 to 130 mark. So based on the split second that you measured the heart rate, the gender didn't change from minute to minute. The other thing is the average heart rate is faster the earlier you are in the pregnancy, or a better way of putting it would be the, the average heart rate gradually decreases as the pregnancy goes on and hopefully the gender didn't change along the way. These are getting so juicy now and this one is the best. Heartburn means your bub has lots of hair because it's coming out of your throat. I know we're not talking anecdotes, but I birthed three babies that were bald as badges <laughs> and I had heartburn every the time. Whole time. But I, we're talking evidence here, so ignore yeah. me. Absolutely no evidence whatsoever. You know, what happens when someone buys a kit or uses an app to try and have a let's say a boy, I don't imagine why, but just say they want a boy and deprive their father of more granddaughters. But Ooh. they use that kit and they have a boy, so they would therefore go around and say, oh, I use this app and it showed me how to have a boy and I have it, had a boy. Yeah. But if they use the app and they have a girl, I doubt they go around going, oh, that stupid app I used to try and have a boy and I got stuck with a girl. Like that's not the sort of general sort of conversation you'd hear if a thousand people use that app. Mm. The feedback would from the 50% that got the gender they wanted would be positive and the 50% that didn't get the gender they wanted would be less likely to talk about it. Yeah. So I guess when somebody has heartburn, which is most pregnant women, <laughs> the ones that have a hairy baby say, oh, look, that proves my hairy baby theory. 
Isn't that called confirmation bias? It's quite a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a widely spoken about thing. Absolutely. Now, it's a good sign if I have nausea at the start of my pregnancy. Well, it's certainly a sign that you're pregnant and strong first trimester symptoms can be very reassuring. So the way I'd answer that is if you have no pregnancy, strong pregnancy symptoms, it doesn't mean your pregnancy isn't healthy or that you're going to miscarry. But having those strong symptoms, particularly for women who've had a past history of miscarriage or difficulty getting pregnant can be greatly reassuring. And I do find in in looking after people in early pregnancy that some people will make a comment like, I just know this pregnancy is fine. I, I, I really feel pregnant. Or on the contrary, people may come along and go, I've just lost my symptoms and I feel like something's wrong. So I wouldn't want to be nasty about an answer to that. I think if you've got strong pregnancy symptoms, that's a great sign of of the pregnancy being healthy, although it may be very (laughs) uncomfortable for you. And if you do lose pregnancy symptoms or you're concerned about your level of pregnancy symptoms, there is no harm seeking reassurance about that. And it is also true that follow-up of hyperemesis pregnancies does show slightly better outcomes than non-hyperemesis pregnancies. So therefore, there is some reassurance that can be given that even though I'm sympathetic that you're feeling terrible and I'm trying to help you with feeling better during the pregnancy, that hyperemesis isn't a sign that you're going to have later pregnancy complications. There's got to be some perk to yeah. vomiting all day, every day, no isn't there? No pun intended. <laughs> I should not do high-intensity exercises during pregnancy. Yeah, very common one and a difficult question to give specific answers about exercising pregnancy. And the best way to answer that would be to say that every woman comes into her pregnancy with her own level of of exercise history. And so some people will come into pregnancy and they've they've not exercised much in the past and you know worked long hours and barely even been able to go for a walk and other people might um, come into their pregnancy an elite athlete who's used to intense exercise and prolonged exercise sessions on a very regular basis so i think you have to take your guidance from your own pre-standing level of exercise. It's not the time to take up intensive exercise and it's not the time to stop intensive exercise. I think you've got to do what you're comfortable with and listen to your body so that if you're finding after exercise there's a very prolonged recovery or you're feeling dizzy or nauseated to a severe level, then it's time to back off. And also, if you're feeling very comfortable with the exercise that you're doing, then that's a sign that you're doing it to an appropriate level. The other thing to say is that during your pregnancy, your exercise tolerance will change because in the first trimester, you might be feeling really tired, nauseated and unwell and not have a very good tolerance for exercise. And in the third trimester of pregnancy, your abdominal muscles are now no longer as strong and there's more 
core strength being put through your back muscles. So you need to be more careful about the way you exercise then that you don't end up hurting your back. So just allow your pregnancy to evolve from early pregnancy through to term and do the exercise you're comfortable with. And I certainly don't believe in saying, oh, you can't let your heart rate go above a certain heart rate. Some people who exercise very frequently, they're able to tolerate very high heart rate levels with very low resting heart rate levels. So I don't think just plucking a number out of the air for your heart rate is an appropriate way of guiding it. I think it's about how you feel when you're exercising, but certainly try and exercise when you're pregnant because there's certainly no doubt that people who exercise in pregnancy feel better in themselves, they eat better, they sleep better, and they enjoy their pregnancy more. So I don't want to discourage exercise. So you're allowed to get hot. Oh, I'm sure somewhere in our myths in pregnancy we'll talk about heat. We can jump there now, don't worry. About fevers, about spas, saunas, natural springs, things like that. Hot baths. I, I hope Sophie will let me say this, but I had a good laugh recently when Sophie posted a picture of herself on the beach with little Pearl and um, some genius sent in a reply that, you know, it's totally inappropriate to take a baby to the beach at such a young age. And I was thinking... Did you not see any of I that? I did. I yeah. just still can't believe yeah. it. As Sophie went just beyond 40 weeks gestation, that meant little Pearl had been implanted in that uterus for about 38 weeks where the temperature remained between 36 and 37 degrees for the entire pregnancy. So going down to the beach when it's like 28 degrees, I don't think would have bothered a newborn baby very much at all. Yeah, I can assure Uh, you I was not going to the beach on a 37 degree day. So no, I can reassure people that their core temperature remains very stable during pregnancy. So therefore, if you were to have a spa, which let's face it is usually up to about 38 or 40 degrees, or have a sauna, not for too long, but and or go in a natural springs or somewhere where the water is very warm, it is very unlikely your core temperature will rise very much. And the reason why your skin gets red and flushed is because you have extra circulation to your skin to act as a radiator. So no, I'm perfectly happy for you to have a sauna or a spa or a, or a hot springs within common sense reasons. And also, if you were to have a fever during pregnancy, say you've got a cold or flu or another illness and your temperature rose to higher than the normal levels to 39 or 40 degrees, whilst there has been concerning publications about high temperatures in pregnancy in the past, it's true to say that when you're pregnant, you're pregnant for a long time. So Therefore, it's highly unlikely you'll get through a pregnancy of nine months without having something happen during the pregnancy, whether it's a cold or flu or a temperature or gastro or a minor car accident or trip over and sprain your ankle. You know, pregnancies go for quite a long time and in anyone living life over nine-month period, things are likely to happen. So speaking of like car accidents, 
I the next question is I shouldn't be stressed early in pregnancy. You know how people are told, oh, if you're stressed, you're going to give yourself which a miscarriage, which is kind even of even if thing, it was, you tell your partner, hey, I cannot be stressed. So absolutely, just, you know, do everything. Telling someone not to stress is like telling someone to calm down when they're angry. Oh, yeah, it's no, it's work. not a good idea. Yeah, well, it's my job, and anyone looking after a, a pregnancy. It's part of their role to look upon the person who's pregnant in a pastoral way and care about their well-being, not just with regard to their pregnancy, but with regard to their general health, their diet, their so- social situation, and stress is a very common thing in the community these days. So one of the things I would say first about stress is if a person told me they were stressed, the rather rather than just saying, well, that won't harm the pregnancy, it would probably be more helpful to help them talk about the stress and what's stressing them and help them deal with that stress. But one thing you do find yourself saying quite commonly is don't be stressed about being stressed <laughs> because if someone has it confirmed to them that stress will harm their pregnancy, then they'll just become more stressed. Yeah. So no stress won't harm the pregnancy. People have babies in war-torn countries and in famines and in all sorts of horrible, stressful situations. So answer number one is try and deal with your stress. Care about why you're being stressed. And number two, don't worry about the stress adversely affecting your pregnancy. If you hear any guzzling, we've just had a little mate come and join us for a feed, so enjoy that. All right, Timmy. Yes. I should be weighed at every antenatal appointment. When I was first training, the tradition of what was called the we and way was absolutely established. So every person arriving at a pregnancy clinic had their weight written down and gave a sample of we, which was that we used a dipstick and that checked for things like um, protein and glucose. The we and way has now been abandoned in almost all clinical settings because there is no evidence that there is any relationship between your weight and the well-being of your pregnancy. Mm. The fundamental rule should be to encourage people to think about what they eat, not what they weigh. Mm. And so routinely weighing patients, if somebody had a poor diet and was gaining what was a so-called ideal amount of weight, well, then it's still a poor diet. And if someone has an excellent diet and they're not putting on much weight or they're putting on more than the average amount of weight, then it's still an excellent diet. So I would always encourage people to think about what they eat, not what they weigh. Think about their diet. Think about, you know, everyone will stray from a completely perfect diet during pregnancy, for goodness sake. <laughs> how far that. How far do some stray? <laughs> but what you've got to be thinking is about, you know, overall, am I in general having a pretty good diet? And um, when you think that even an average weight gain of, say, 15 to 20 kilos in pregnancy, the baby is only like, three and a half kilos of that. So there was no relationship between the amount of weight gain and the weight of the baby. And to people who would reply, but a lot of weight gain in late pregnancy might be an indicator of preeclampsia. 
Well, there are far more accurate, far more helpful ways of keeping an eye out for preeclampsia or other blood pressure disorders at the end of pregnancy than weighing. So no, I would not, um, I certainly don't in my own practice and I, I'm not aware of any other people or public hospitals where people are weighed at every visit. So you're happy to say that eating for two is a myth? Oh, absolutely <laughs> it is. And um, um, Bugger. Look, if somebody is very conscious of their diet and conscious of their weight and feel that they're overweight, then of course I wouldn't be against them weighing themselves, but that's not in the setting of a clinic or, or an antenatal care facility where you're just weighing every patient as a matter of routine. If you're concerned about your diet and weight gain, you're weighing yourself because of that. Babies get bigger with every pregnancy. On average, people tend to have bigger babies, um, the more babies they have. And that that adds to a myth, which we could mention that, you know, if if the parents were big babies, they're more likely to have a big baby. Well, that's a bit difficult if you and your partner were both the first babies in a family or you were both the eighth babies in a family. So um, babies on average tend to get bigger, mm. but not absolutely. And uh, and I wouldn't say that you can predict with confidence the size of a baby on the basis of the size of a previous baby. You'd be a bit worried if, you, if your first child was like a nine pounder and you had to keep going and you had several children. I'd be more worried if one of my parents was still using pounds. <laughs> That's what all my doctors said. That like what my children were. They said it in pounds. Well, they and may, I say it to your you. Your doctor too. may have been have the excuse that he was at least born when pounds still <laughs> exist. But I think it was like you're in the, old, Jade, but you're not no, that old. I think it was the early 1960s when <laughs> we went to metric. So. Uh, Sorry about that. We'll Do you know how often that. nowadays when I say, oh, pearls four kilos, that people go, I don't know what that is. What is that in pounds? And mm. I'm like, I don't know. I live in Australia and mm. it's 2023. Yeah. Go down to the butcher and order a <laughs> pound of chops. But I think it's because we were told that's what our babies were in pounds. So when people ask, they're just trying to work out where? what they've been told, yeah, yeah where, where that lies. Now, we've got a few beauty questions. So... We're getting to the end of this episode, so we'll try oh, no. and I know, but you'll be you'll and be back. Pearls you'll be back. joined us. She has. Well, uh, I have to come back as we have to discuss the myths of birth, and oh, then I will then one. wear some sort of combat uniform for the following month. I won't go on social media yep. for a solid. We'll take our comments off. <laughs> And by the way, if anyone who's having a crack at me today, I don't read the comments anyway, so, <laughs> so you're wasting your breath. So if he doesn't, she gets really sad about it, so don't do it. I can't get laser hair removal. Uh, the laser hair removal is only skin deep, so yeah. uh, of course you can. I'll, I'll say a, fun, a strange thing about this is um, it's so common for me to be asked to give a letter to say that it's safe to have laser skin remo uh, hair removal or to have um, Botox or to have a personal trainer. And I always think to myself, so the laser hair clinic 
is doing the laser hair removal and you're paying them to do it and they're supposedly professional laser hair removers and yet I have to be the one to say, oh, it's safe for them to do it when I'm not providing that service. So it, I always find those questions very strange and awkward. But, yes, you can have laser hair removal during pregnancy. But most places I don't think if they knew you were pregnant would do it. No. Yeah. So what about Botox? Well, I don't believe there's any solid literature on Botox causing problems in pregnancy and the idea with Botox is that it is injected in subcutaneously so that it will um, have its effect locally and not be, as we call, systemically active, in other words, go into your circulation. I mean, it is a bacterial toxin that's being injected into you and therefore I would believe most people wouldn't be comfortable to have mm. something like that injected into them while they're pregnant. I certainly know that lots of people I've looked after in pregnancy have had Botox and lip fillers and and various other um, cosmetic procedures done. But if I was asked, is it okay to have it, I wouldn't feel comfortable to say that Botox is safe because, first of all, I don't know who's giving it to you and how experienced or, or and how well they do it, whether they might accidentally put that needle straight into a blood vessel and inject it into your circulation. I don't know who's doing it. And therefore, I think that really it's the person injecting the Botox who needs to take responsibility for whether or not it causes a complication. And so what about retinols and vitamin A in skincare? If it's just a topical formulation, then that's safe. But if you're taking, obviously you wouldn't take any oral retinoids. Yeah. What about I shouldn't dye or bleach my hair during yeah, pregnancy? Another common one, um, absolutely a myth. You know, hair dye is obviously working on the hair. It's not working by being absorbed into your circulation. And what about smelling paint? No, smelling <laughs> or paint. Or purpose or while you're painting. Well, I just think chemicals like if you were smelling bleach doing all the a time or doing or... a reno. Yeah, well, I mean, we won't bring up your glue-sniffing issues, but um, <laughs> the, when you think about the question, if you, if you were concerned, so you're doing a renovation and you're thinking, geez, that polyurethane paint has a really strong smell, you know, could it harm my pregnancy? If you, do, if you go back a step and say, could they actually sell at a hardware store something that if you breathe it in would harm your pregnancy unless there was a very specific mm. label on it saying, you know, you, this must be used with some form of mask. So, no, paints these days, and indeed most paints these days are water-based, which makes them even safer and less smelly. But, no, you can't harm yourself um, by smelling paints and other things that you'd be used during a home renovation. But if you need an excuse for having to do the painting, then you're welcome to use your pregnancy. <laughs> and last question, I think I know the answer to it, but we may as well throw it in here. Can I smoke during pregnancy? Well, of course, that's an absolute no. And the, the list of negatives associated with cigarette smoking in pregnancy is is so long we'd need a whole episode about it. I mean, fortunately these days smoking in pregnancy is quite rare. 
Um, what about, what about vapes? vaping? Vaping has become much more popular and it is true that one of the issues about cigarette smoking is that, you know, there's, there's up to 500 different toxic chemicals in a cigarette. It's not just nicotine and tar we're talking about. And there are also many, many chemicals in vapes. And of course, because nicotine containing vapes are of questionable legality in Australia, therefore, most of them are being imported. And therefore, most people who are smoking a vape wouldn't really know what's in it. So I would, I would strongly recommend that anyone who smokes or vapes don't do it during pregnancy. And um, if you're trying to give up smoking to try and look upon pregnancy as an ideal opportunity to give up smoking mm -hmm. and uh, certainly quit has resources specifically for pregnant women. And if you need to use a nicotine patch or gum or, or spray, that would be far preferable to smoking because that's giving you the nicotine but without all the other chemicals. Um, and I don't mean take up nicotine during pregnancy. <laughs> what I mean is it is so much better than smoking. If you are addicted to smoking, you shouldn't be chastised for that. It's, it's a difficult thing like any other addiction and I feel really sorry for anyone who's trying to give up smoking and struggling with it, particularly if they're pregnant. And, you know, so I, I wouldn't chastise that person. I would try and help them and sort of try and be positive. Look, if we can, if we can help you to give up smoking during this pregnancy, you might not take it up again. Well, what do you think about that, Pearl? You got all She's that wisdom? She's fallen asleep, but I found it quite interesting. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us again, Timmy. It was a pleasure. Oh. And I hope, I hope I don't come across in any way as cynical or negative or or being nasty about people believing things. I understand pregnancy is a time when you're overloaded with information mm. that you're trying to sort your way through and you're overloaded a lot with negative information. Mm -hmm. You can't do this, you can't do that. And most of it is based on absolute myths. <laughs> and uh, if I could help dispel those myths, and make pregnancy a happier, more positive time. That's the aim of today's episode. It's not to not to say to people they're stupid for believing things, just help them to not believe them. Thank you so much, Timmy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.